Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Y'all remember back in the before times where something was what it was? Yeah, those were good times. Oh well, those times are poof, gone. Nope, today, just because something absolutely is, it definitely doesn't mean it isn't what it might be. But what we can know for absolutely maybe is that something is what you feel it is at that specific time, which might be completely opposite of what someone else thinks it is at that exact same time. And you're both right. Now, doesn't that make you happy? On today's episode, first we'll learn why perfectly average people need very special accommodations, and then we'll discuss the vilest of childhood maladies. And don't forget, goal update number 17 after the bumper, important lessons learned, negativity set to maximum. So wedge yourself into your chair made for only one, and get those child emancipation documents signed, because we're definitely not going here, despite saying, here we go. If you've kept up with the news as of late, or if you're a watcher of TV, you'll no doubt at least be aware of the latest television writer's strike. Now, I don't care at all. Like, I mean, not at all. In fact, I find it somewhat hilarious that the late-night talk shows and comedy sketch shows like Saturday Night Live had to shut down immediately. I mean, the talk shows are manned by people who are supposed to be comedians of some stripe, right? But they can't write their own material? None of it? Apparently, they're nothing but bots. Just feed in the words you want them to say and... And they say the words, adding some inflection and funny facial expressions. That's literally all they do, apparently. And Saturday Night Live? They couldn't just keep going? I don't know. Maybe it's illegal for them to write their own jokes? Which, look, we know that uh, nearly all unions, nearly all the time, are useless. Sorry, sometimes the truth hurts just a bit. They used to do good things. They could do good things, but union plantation masters and their overlords, the Democrats, have turned them into nothing but money-generating pyramid schemes, so I guess maybe maybe SNL can't do their own thing. I don't know. The last time this happened was about 15 years ago in 2007 and 2008 for about 100 days. <sighs> However, did we survive? Now that, as it turns out, proved to be a boondoggle for reality TV. Reality TV was a thing in 2007 already, but when you have no script writers, just make shows with no scripts. At that time, more than 100 reality TV shows popped onto the airwaves to suck up the space that was left by scripted shows that had gone dark. And all those specific shows come and go with a few long-term mainstays. The reality is, reality TV is still beloved by tens or by hundreds of millions of viewers worldwide. Whether it's court shows, dating shows, cooking shows, shows about specific jobs and careers, adventures, challenges... Reality TV is everywhere, with pretty much something for everyone. But now it seems that popping on the TV, reality TV is the only real information we get anymore. And even that is highly edited, somewhat scripted, and heavily scored to invoke just the right emotions at just the right time to set the hook and keep you coming back for more. And for as much as we purport to like to watch the reality of other people and the various providers and networks are more than happy to profit off of our love of so-called reality, it seems that our grasp on reality is rapidly slipping from our soft, remote-controlling, Cheeto-dust-covered fingers. I could pick from dozens upon dozens of examples, but as it turns out, found on NotTheBee.com, headline... This lady has five ways to help your fat friends, and none of them include telling them to move more and eat less. Now, just a caveat. If the title of this article offends you, then you may need to do something to improve your physical self. You may be a wonderful person, but if you think the suggestion to lose weight is offensive, you likely need to lose weight. And as a serial yo-yoer as it pertains to weight, I can say that. And as an American and a human, I can say it anyway. So this article is just our launching pad. We'll scoot around through some others, as we've been doing. But the fact that this isn't a lone ranger, an anomaly, I I mean, I just had to say something about it. 
This article highlights an Instagram Reels video, which is just a short video that can be posted on Instagram or Facebook on whatever topic you want. This uh, oversized young lady decided she wanted to use her 15 seconds of fame to school us in accommodating, well, let's call a spade a spade, shall we? This video was her telling her friends, family, and pretty much all of us how to accommodate her. To give you some scale, and you can check it out yourself, the link, as always, is in the notes, She's not like Dr. Now peering through your windows as you eat the entire box of Swiss cake rolls huge. She's definitely big, too big. Uh, in the before times, we used to say fat, and, uh, and that's what she is. Now, maybe she has a glandular problem, uh, but that's doubtful. I also doubt that she's retaining water or that she's whatever other excuse is used in a desperate attempt to avoid saying, oh, oh, this fat, well, it's my fault. So her little video is uh, is just her with music playing and little captions popping up, you know, to educate us. Five ways you can support your fat friends. And number one, call ahead to restaurants to make sure they have fat-friendly seating. Number two, communicate about stairs, parking, and walking at a venue. Number three, call ahead to ask about the weight limits of equipment. Number four, make sure your home has fat-friendly seating. Number five, keep your negative body talk and diet plans to yourself. Now take a moment. What was your reaction as you heard me recount her five ways to <clears throat> support your fat friends? What exactly are we supporting them in? Yeah, right, their fatness. What if we change the issue? How about Five ways to support your heroin-addicted friends. Five ways to support your friend experiencing a heart attack. Five ways to support your friend with the gangrenous, almond-smelling, pus-filled infection. Five ways to support your friend addicted to risky sexual encounters with random strangers. Let's be honest here. Obesity for nearly everyone is a problem of will, stress, convenience, depression, etc., etc., Relatively few have a legitimate genetic predisposition or an anatomical issue that leads to obesity, although those are realities for some, I will admit that. Now, according to a Harvard study, our current society has many external factors that lead to obesity. Our environment, the way we grew up, the activities we were or weren't involved in, the amount of screen time, the availability of unhealthy or even an overabundance of healthy snacks, just 24-7, the amount spent on food eaten outside of the home, for instance, rose from 27% of the food budget in 1970 to 46% in 2006. And when you supersize your fast food meal, you're taking in approximately your daily allotment of calories in one sitting. And since those are relatively empty calories, you're definitely hungry again later and more hungry the next day. Add to these factors the reality that less than 25% meet the recommended amount of exercise per day, which is apparently an hour of moderate to vigorous exercise every single day. Ugh. According to the study, add in stress and lack of sleep and we're just a pudgy ticking time blob. But now... Now we can't say those things. This Harvard study was published in 2019, but now we don't live in reality. This young girl appears to be maybe in her 20s. If she continues with her delusion that fat is beautiful, that fat is healthy, she'll end up having a variety of medical issues. We'll have aches and pains well before the average person. We'll have a harder time finding a spouse. We'll have a harder, riskier time giving birth to a child. And we'll die at an age much less than the average. And the delusions won't last forever, whether she admits it or not. She'll eventually wake up to the fact that her normalization of her physical condition was a horrible idea with nothing good coming of it and a whole lot of bad. But this delusion is prevalent across the United States, at least. In mid-April, the story came out about one Jalen Cheney in... Uh, influencer from Vancouver, Washington, who started a change.org petition entitled, quote, demand for the FAA to protect plus-sized customers. Well, okay, it's not the FAA's job to protect the obese, but what exactly did she want? Well, she said that she and, and her fiancé, who uh, both appear to be, uh, I would say, at least four bills if they go a pound, are discriminated against when flying. Mm-hmm. People make comments and look at them disapprovingly. 
I mean, how is that anyone but their problem? That's their problem. I'm not saying that we should be hateful and mean to people, but this weight thing is their choice and choices of consequences. And let's be honest here. We live in a sinful world with mostly unsafe people who are going to be disgusted and vocal about your life choices. Now, she said that, quote, on another flight, I was forced to occupy only one seat with immovable armrests that caused me pain and bruises. <sighs> yeah, sweetie, poopy, boppy, nobody forced you to do that. You bought the ticket, you chose the flight, you even chose your seats, most likely. Maybe you should have called ahead to see if they could accommodate your, um, girth. She said, quote, the FAA must require all airlines to implement a clear customer of size policy that prioritizes the comfort and well-being of all passengers. This policy should include clear guidelines on accommodating larger passengers, such as providing larger seats, seatbelt extenders, and alternative seating arrangements. All plus-size passengers should be provided with an extra free seat, or even two or three seats, depending on their size, to accommodate their needs and ensure their comfort during the flight. Now, she also wants the airlines to reimburse customers of size for any extra seat fees they had to pay. It should be easy and straightforward. First of all, customer of size, I mean, seriously, no, you're a fat customer. This stupid trend of placing the human first just drives me crazy. It's no longer a disabled person. It's a person with a disability. It's not a colored person. It's a person of color. Now it's not a fat customer. It's a customer of size. And the reasoning is literally because we want to focus on the person, not the condition. You're focusing me on saying more words than are needed because you're a snowflake. I don't want to do that. Second, she wants free seats. This is a fat customer of entitlement. Did I get that right? This is someone that's grown up with no idea how, uh, well, how pretty much anything works. I would guess that if asked, she has no idea that it, uh, it costs money to fly an aeroplane. She, because of her lifestyle choice, deserves entitlements. That's all she knows. And if she gets a free seat because she needs an extra, shouldn't I get a free seat? Because I don't need an extra. Additionally, she wants the airports to eat some of this fat, quote, providing additional airport assistance to plus-size travelers if necessary, including wheelchair assistance and priority boarding, along with proper employee training to handle sensitive situations and providing appropriate customer service for larger travelers. Also, larger-sized bathrooms for plus-size travelers and planes should have at least one wheelchair-accessible restroom. Or how about you lose some weight? Are we really this far disconnected from reality? How was your lack of caloric self-control any of the rest of our problem? Oh, and, and fat Buddha forbid that you suggest maybe diet and exercise. That's just being fat phobic, which we'll get to in a moment. But at the beginning of the year, I saw this headline flash by, saved it until now. Quote, U.S. experts recommend weight loss drugs for obese children. Now, this is a trusted medical authority, the AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, that are saying that kids 12 years old and up should just take drugs to treat their obesity. Now that we've found a diabetes drug, it makes you feel nauseous when you take it, so it makes it hard to eat, thus forces you to lose weight. Why? Let's pump the kids full of this, too. I know the authors of this uh, recommendation say that this is for severe cases, but even there, how about diet and exercise? But, uh, but no, we're normalizing a world of drug addicts, living in a world where drugs solve all problems. Does that seem like a good idea? If asked, what would reality have to say about this? Now, according to the NIH, a 2014 study was conducted utilizing data from 20 different body mass index studies and found that those who were considered extremely obese would have a shortened lifespan by up to 14 years as compared to others. Now, I'll say this. The BMI scale isn't right for everyone. My doctor uses it as a guideline, but generally he bumps every level up by one. So what the BMI classes as overweight, he'll generally class as approximately normal. But it's all very dependent on your skeletal frame and your muscle mass. So you may want to talk with a doc before just using the BMI calculator. That said, if you're extremely obese, you know it. You may talk a big game like our few influencers thus far, but you absolutely know it. Now, the NIH also has an article on the health risks of being overweight or obese. They include 
Type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, sleep apnea, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver diseases, osteoarthritis, gallbladder diseases, some cancers, kidney disease, pregnancy problems, depression, and feelings of shame, rejection, and guilt, which can cause a death spiral of unhealthy eating of your feelings and bad feelings due to your eating. But hey, maybe you'll get a free extra seat on the airplane, or two or three, right, huh? Uh, We shouldn't mention anything about diet and exercise. Just accommodate them. Affirm them in their deadly delusion. And that's what we're supposed to do. As we're, we're doing with the demonic, bloodthirsty, transgender cult, we're not just normalizing, but we're glorifying and, in fact, deifying severe mental and spiritual problems. And what are the odds that, just like the tranny cult, the severe sickness manifests itself as a physical consequence and generally leads to an early death due to physical pain and massive depression? Yeah, the uh, the LGBTQ world kind of seems like the uh, obese world in that way, doesn't it? But don't say what I said. Uh, I sure hope you had your earbuds in. You don't want to be canceled and labeled fatphobic just in case someone heard what I said. The shame of recognizing someone as obese far outweighs the shame of someone living in obesity. Just, Just remember that. Now, to me, I always thought a phobia was a fear. And I'm not homophobic. I'm not afraid of homos. I'm not fatphobic. I'm not afraid of fatties. Although, I'll be honest, those that are accusing me of being fatphobic are generally hostile. So yeah, maybe I'm a little bit afraid of them. But in general, I'm not afraid of someone for being overweight or fat. I've been technically obese myself a few times. Not extreme, but obese. At least according to the BMI calculator, I wasn't afraid of me. I was afraid I was going to die from being too fat. I wasn't afraid of me. The fear of dying is called thanatophobia, so I guess I was fatothanatophobic or something. But no, being uh, being phobic means you're hateful, apparently now. A hateful, terrible person, in fact, that should be exterminated. So this entire podcast would be labeled fatphobic, as I'm not willing to go with the crowd and just accept that fat is beautiful or normal or healthy or what have you. So according to Livestrong, you know, an organization with the mission of, quote, Livestrong.com delivers trusted health, nutrition, and fitness information for all. We strive to give you the tools and knowledge you need to live a happier, healthier life. Well, they have an article entitled, uh, What Fat Phobia Really Means and Why It's So Harmful. They start with all the terms that haters like me evoke. Fat phobia, anti-fat bias, anti-fatness, sizeism, weight bias, and all of these, quote, focus on weight stigma, the discriminatory acts and beliefs targeted at people who have overweight or obesity. Did you catch it? Did you see what they did there? You aren't overweight or obese. You have overweight or obesity. It's a malady, a disease. You're the victim here. They go on to say that any term that includes the word fat tends to be controversial. (laughs) Seriously? The article quotes, quote, fat activist Aubrey Gordon, which you'll never guess appears to be about a quarter ton, as saying, quote, Indeed, terms like fat phobia are controversial because they can imply that anti-fat discrimination is the result of a phobia, an uncontrolled or unintentional fearful mental state, when they're actually learned and often conscious beliefs and behaviors. Right. The learned, and I'd argue inherent knowledge, that if a regular kitchen chair can't hold you up, there might be too much of you there. Dr., and I'm not making this up, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford says, quote, weight bias, or what many people think of as fat phobia, perpetuates the belief that people who have overweight or obesity are lazy, lack willpower, and even have low levels of intelligence. She goes on to decry culture and society, the fact that cinemas and airlines aren't, quote, designed to accommodate people with larger bodies. People with larger bodies. Uh-huh. Further, would you believe that not all clothing fits all people? And medical gowns and exam tables aren't accessible to people of all sizes. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, you are getting to doctor now territory if the table can't accommodate you. I'm just going to say that. Fat, Ima, says, quote, it's also dehumanizing, and it endangers both the physical and mental health of those who have overweight or obesity. <laughs> have. They don't have anything they are. And just for context, Fatima is an average to slender black woman. Wait, no, I said that all wrong. I'm sorry. Fatima is a woman of black slender to average body blackness. I, I can't be right. You get the idea. She neither is nor has fat bodiedness. Now, we get to the root of the problem. Did you know that being exercised used to mean affluence? 
I think we all probably knew that. But in the mid-1700s, apparently the Europeans in the slave trade decided that slender and white was the way to go, specifically because racism. At least that's what Sabrina Strings, a black PhD-degreed sociologist at the University of California, Irvine, told NPR. I mean, could you possibly get any more leftist biased than that last sentence? Anyway, blah, 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 fat people are right, the rest of us are wrong, and if we dare say different, we're haters and racists. In fact, we're so far disconnected from reality that BMC.org, that's the website for Boston Medical Center, like like a medical facility, has fat phobia defined on their site. It's, it's a noun, quote, also known as anti-fat, the implicit and explicit bias of overweight individuals that is rooted in a sense of blame and presumed moral failing. Being overweight and or fat is highly stigmatized in Western culture. Anti-fatness is intrinsically linked to anti-blackness, racism, classism, misogyny, and many other systems of oppression. Anti-fatness contributes to individuals not receiving adequate health care for a number of reasons. One, the assumption is if someone is overweight, they cannot be healthy. Two, clinical care teams typically lack experience in treating diverse body sizes. Three, Weight-related structural barriers, e.g. size of exam tables, gowns, blood pressure cuffs, and scale limits. End of quote. I, I mean, I, I don't even know where to go with this. If you don't toe the line saying that fat is beautiful and fat is normal and fat is wonderful and fat is healthy, you're not only an anti-fat hater, but apparently you're also anti-black and racist, you're classist, a misogynist, and all of the other ists that are out there. You big old jerkist. So... By their definition, they're literally saying that if you're a woman, black or poor, you're probably a fatty McFatty face. Now, how is me saying that all ethnicities, both genders, all socioeconomic levels can be and should be reasonably sized to avoid all the health concerns previously mentioned? How am I the bad guy by saying that? And how can a medical facility state that being overweight is fine? Stop assuming that it's unhealthy. We know it's unhealthy per the data. Oh, but I keep forgetting that feelings trump data. And we could just go on and on. The reality is that we're getting fatter as a society. In fact, one of the amazing things in this country, and I think around the globe, thanks to capitalism and thanks to Christian charity, there are more deaths per year due to obesity than there are due to malnutrition. Do you realize what that means? It's never been that way before in our history. That shows the unbelievable blessings of abundance that God has showered on this planet, despite who we are, despite the fact that most people are not saved and are enemies and haters of God, his common grace is evident in the fact that we have more food than we need, generally speaking. But of course, we've abused that as well. The reality is, as Christians, we should not be those that allow people to live in delusion. That's not loving. A radio broadcaster I used to listen to until he died a few years ago, not from obesity, he literally got hit by a train while out for a run next to the tracks. Well, he used to say, it's not offensive if it's true. Now, he wasn't a Christian guy. We don't need to be mean or spiteful or hurtful about it. But it's not loving to look at these fat influencers or these doctors or the common person and say, yeah, you've got an extra human's worth of weight on you, but you're fine. It's fine. We're all fine. Knowing that uh, they're going to die an early death and likely are struggling with self-control and depression, anxiety, and who knows what. It very well may be offensive, but if it's true and it's a matter of life and death, which this is, then how is it loving to be affirming? I know that it's the in thing to be a proponent for everything that isn't considered the norm, but why is the norm necessarily evil and wrong in all cases? How is unhealthy healthy? Just like we can't change a boy to a girl by saying the words and affirming feelings, we can't change an unhealthy fat person into a healthy fat person. It's not reality. But we've lost touch with reality, and looking around today, it seems that this applies to everything now. Up is down, dark is light, wet is dry. We're living in opposite world. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Isaiah 5, 20-21 An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their discretion. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Jeremiah 5, 30-31 No matter how many influencers, celebrities, sports stars, politicians, doctors, counselors, government agencies, or news anchors drive the false prophesying, the upside-down world, into our heads, they haven't been able to change the laws given to us at creation. So fat is unhealthy and always will be. Boys are boys, girls are girls and always will be. 
Babies are babies born or not, and always will be. We aren't God. We can't speak our will into existence no matter how strongly we feel it, no matter how many likes we get, no matter how loudly we shout at the sky. We're just simply not God. But we know God, and they need to know God. Paul, apparently answering a question of great concern from the church at Thessalonica, was speaking of the end times and the signs that would be seen at the end times. He made it clear that the time was not yet, that there were signs yet to be fulfilled, but then he warns, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. As the saying goes, you know, these days pick your pleasure, right? We are literally at a point in our history that's unique to modern man. We're fighting for the unborn, fighting for the mental health of children, fighting for the right to be able to defend yourself, fighting for morals, ethics, and values, and we are called evil. And the destruction, mutilation, and murder of humanity is called good. And we've defaulted so far down that we're seeing this kind of deception, this destruction of humanity extending to something as base as a healthy weight, something that there's literally no debate on. All data points one direction, but the delusion is so great humanity can't or just won't see it. What we can pray is that this isn't the strong delusion sent by God, but rather a delusion allowed by God. The Bible tells us that there is a point where we can continuously harden our heart to the truth, and God will finally harden our hearts permanently. We can but pray that for uh, at least some, this is not a final delusion sealing the fate of the deluded. We know that the only hope for mankind is God, the gospel, and from our vantage point, all humanity still has the chance to be regenerated by God. Thus, we are to still always be prepared, and as we go about in our daily lives, tell others, as we have the opportunity about the real source of truth and light, the freedom found only in living in the truth. Now, the author of the Not the Bee article gives his own list of five ways to support your fat friends. Number one, tell them to turn off Netflix and go for a dang walk, then go on a lot of other dang walks. Number two, tell them to stop eating junk food immediately and, and invest in the healthy protein. Number three, tell them they are going to die a slow, horrible death as their quality of life decreases over years of rolling health issues. Number four, tell them to go to church and get emotional support if they have spiritual issues that are feeding their addiction. And number five, get in the trenches and go on a dang walk with them. And I agree with all of these, but number four should really be number one. And it really shouldn't be, hey, go to church if you need emotional support, if you think spiritual issues are feeding the addiction. It should be, hey, let me tell you about someone that not only cares about you, but wants you to be healthy, whole, and satisfied inside and out. And not only wants it for you, but has provided the way free of charge. There's no reason you have to live in a world of constant dissatisfaction, of anger, of depression, of shame. You can be free from the chains that are binding you. And I'll walk with you, literally and spiritually. Until someone is given a real reason to turn from the hopeless delusions of this world, no surface-level suggestion, program, fix, or reason will work. There must be an intrinsic reason to turn from a delusion and embrace the truth once again. And seeing the massive delusion this country and world is currently under, in just every aspect of life, there is only one being that can initiate that turn from deception and death to truth and life. Well, comrade, I see your back. If you turn around, I could see your front. Oh, that was bad. I, I wouldn't, I, I could not be mad at you if you just turn us off right here. But, but please don't. I, I have more words to say still. Welcome back to our look at the communist goals for America. Deep breath here. As read into the congressional record by a Democrat in 1963. This is part 15, and we're in the final stretch. Fairly confident that we'll be wrapping this up by part 16, probably 17. And then, I'm not really sure. I have some ideas for other continuing long-term series kind of like this, but I'm not sure yet if I'll do that or just drop back into current event news and such, since, wow, is there a lot out there. Anyway, not really relevant to right now. We'll tackle that as it comes. For today, we'll be starting with goal number 41. As a reminder, as of last time, I've given the commies the equivalent of 26.5 goals accomplished out of 40, which equates to 66.25%. 
That's not good for us. And by us, I mean freedom-loving, constitutional, and or Christian conservatives. Because uh, communism is bad, okay? Anyway, goal number 41. Emphasize the need to raise children away from the negative influence of parents. Attribute prejudices, mental blocks, and retarding of children to suppressive influence of parents. Now, I'll be honest. I just kind of glanced through this full list of 45 prior to embarking on this extended review. I saw certain keywords and phrases and thought, uh, yeah, this might be good to cover. You and I, we might both get some good info out of this. But each week, as I move from point to point, goal to goal, I'm shocked at what the plan was 60 years ago. I mean, how well thought out the communists were in laying out a plan to systematically destroy each and every system we have in place. This is kind of like the Paul Harvey radio bit from 1965 about if I were the devil. Do we still have thinkers like these today? I mean, Paul Harvey warning us was spot on. The communist plan serving as a warning to us, spot on. Now, they weren't prophetic. I don't believe they had any special Holy Spirit-inspired insight into the future. They just logically thought through a plan of destruction or how to bring the United States to its knees and render it economically, socially, and spiritually impotent on the world stage. Now, this goal, to not just influence kids, not just propagandize and brainwash kids, not just manipulate kids, but to make literal adversaries, enemies of parents and children, this is the ultimate way to rapidly, meaning within a generation or two, fundamentally change the entire direction of the country. In 1909, Woodrow Wilson, that, uh, you know, that leftist, progressive, racist, evil nightmare of a president of ours, one of the worst in our country's history, said this, quote, the purpose of a university should be to make a son as unlike his father as possible. Really? Because it almost seems like they should um, teach stuff. Eh, maybe it's just me. In 1933, Adolf Hitler said, quote, If the older generation cannot get accustomed to us, we shall take their children away from them and rear them as needful to the fatherland. Al Gore, back in 2009, was secretly recorded by a student during a speech mainly focused on the politically motivated myth of climate change, where parents weren't allowed, as saying, quote, when I was your age and the civil rights revolution was unfolding and we kids asked our parents and their generation, explain to me again why it's okay for the law to officially discriminate against people because of their skin color. And when our parents' generation couldn't answer that question, that's when the law started to change. There are some things about our world that you know that older people don't know. Why would that be? Well, in a period of rapid change, the old assumptions sometimes just don't work anymore because they're out of date. Yeah, those stupid old fogies that try to raise you in their antiquated system of old think. What a bunch of goobs. Of course, the leftist trope is that the parents shouldn't be in charge of raising and educating children. And we've got Hillary Clinton's book in 1996 entitled It Takes a Village. In August of 2020, in the middle of school shutdowns and virtual learning due to a manufactured virus and manufactured pandemic, many parents discovered exactly what their children were being taught or indoctrinated with in school. One teacher at a high school in Philadelphia said the quiet part out loud in a series of tweets, quote, So, this fall, virtual class discussions will have many potential spectators, parents, siblings, etc. in the same room. We'll never be quite sure who is overhearing the discourse. What does this do for our equity-slash-inclusion work? Now, this may sound misogynist, but this is written by an alleged man. This is no man. This is an emasculated eunuch, a leftist male. Sorry, not sorry. As a man, I give very little latitude for thoughts like these coming from another man. The most disgraceful, shameful thing you can be, as a human, in my opinion, is a man who supports leftist ideologies. It's shameful. I angrily digress. He, uh, and I use that term really loosely, goes on to say, quote, How much have students depended on the somewhat secure barriers of our physical classrooms to encourage vulnerability? How many of us have installed some version of 
What happens here stays here to help this. While conversations about race are in my wheelhouse and remain a concern in this no-walls environment, I am most intrigued by the damage that helicopter-slash-snowplow parents can do in honest conversations about gender-slash-sexuality. And while conservative parents are my chief concern, I know that the damage can come from the left too. If we are engaged in the messy work of destabilizing a kid's racism or homophobia or transphobia, how much do we want their classmates' parents piling on? Hmm. This sentiment was echoed throughout the educational system, as the system itself is irreparably compromised and damaged. Really, in my opinion, the only fix is to burn it to the ground and start over. In October 2021, that horrible troll of a woman, Randy Weingarten, the evil president of the American Federation of Teachers, tweeted that parents don't have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. <laughs> That's an interesting theory there, Randy. I'll give you a D, because, you know, you tried. In April 2022, our illustrious geriatric dementia-riddled president told teachers, quote, They're all our children. They're not somebody else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom. Which is what former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe said the year before, quote, I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out, make their own decisions. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. <laughs> Shocker that the leftist messaging is the same no matter which Marxist you hear it from. Oh, oh Terry, bye-bye. In March 2023, Georgia State Representative Lydia Glaze said, quote, I see access as a problem. I see parents being able to direct their child's education, and they are already in the lower 25th percentile, meaning a lot of those parents did not finish high school, could not finish their own education. I am extremely concerned that we would put money in their hands, that entire piece of life in the hands of parents who are not qualified to make those decisions, and they don't have the money to put in the difference that their child would need to attend a private school. I am for private schools. All of my children graduated from private schools, but I am not for them if we take public school dollars and use them for private schools. We paid for it, and we were able to. Oh. Well, so parents are stupid, and poor parents, especially poor stupid parents, should just suck it up and, you know, just take the public dreck that they're given. Got it. Then in April of 2023, crazy old child sniffer Joe Biden, you know, the meat suit being used as a president by his Marxist handlers, said, quote, There's no such thing as someone else's child. No such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all of our children. Yeah, which was apparently quoting a teacher's speech given during the 2023 National and State Teacher of the Year award thing. Who cares? I guess it still takes a village, right? Just the right village, parents excluded from this village. And finally, just a few days ago in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, contributor Laura Hermer starts her article entitled, quote, Parents Don't Get to Choose What Their Children Become by saying, quote, when you're a parent, no one, not the Almighty, not nature, not fate, asks you what child you want. No matter how much you might want your child to share your love of fishing, or to become a respected business person, or to not contract childhood leukemia, you don't get much say in the matter. You can love and support your child as their own person, with their own challenges, desires, and goals. Or you can do something else. Something likely to be harmful. I know this because my young adult child is transgender. He has received hormone therapy and other necessary medical care for several years now. Oh. So we're going to listen to a child abusing parent. Got it. Yeah, got it. She, I, I must, they, she, he, they, goes on to explain how the delay in affirming her daughters, because that's what she really is, is a abused daughter, how the delay in affirming her daughter's mental disorder was her own out-of-step, obsolete, literally insane thought that she was the parent, not the child. Now, she didn't say it quite like that, but let's be honest here. Now, I wonder if she'd just affirm her child if she had had childhood leukemia, or if she would have taken every measure available to help her through a damaging, potentially deadly, physical illness. 
are we seeing the pattern here? Parents are being labeled as old, out of step, stupid, restrictive, uncaring, incapable of understanding. Really, it's almost like parents are responsible for perpetuating prejudices, mental blocks, and retarding of their children. Wow, where have I heard that before? Once again, I don't know that I could attribute this to the communists directly. They may have just seen the trend starting in the U.S. already and thought, uh, yeah, yeah, me too. Knowing that if parents pass on the same morals, values, ethics, patriotism, etc. to their children, America will never fall. One of the best, if not only ways, to collapse America without even firing a shot would be to just uh, change their minds. So regardless of if the Red Menace did this or not, I've got to give them the point on this one. The effect hasn't come to full realization yet, but there is no question that the groundwork is laid. What I can say is that potentially we could pull this point back away from the communists in the not-too-distant future, as the COVID lockdowns revealed a lot of the absolute evil going on in our schools, and parents have not only been pushing back, but also taking over school boards and pulling kids out of public schools. So maybe there's some hope, but that relies on parents with the right American conservative and or Christian morals and ethics teaching their children and doing their best to protect from and condition against the relentless propaganda of the demonic leftists. So at that point, that brings us to 27.5 out of 41. Now, I've done this one other time before, I believe. For the sake of time, I'm going to uh, skip goal number 42 and hit it next time as it's a bigger one, and I'm going to move to actually goal number 44. Why 44? Yeah, no idea, but let's try it, shall we? Goal number 44, internationalize the Panama Canal. Okay. I'm going to try to avoid giving you the entire history of the Panama Canal, but we definitely need to go back a little bit in order to get an idea of what we're looking at. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, two of those waters eventually became the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. How's that for a timeline jump? The Panama Canal is a water channel that cuts across the country of Panama, which is unbelievably fortunate, because how weird would it be if the Panama Canal was like in South Jersey or Nicaragua, right? You'd have to field all sorts of questions about the name and whatnot. Anyway, for all intents and purposes, it joins the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. And as far as ocean travel goes, it cuts the trip between the two from about 8,000 miles to about 50 miles. To give you some sort of scope, if you wanted to travel from New York to San Francisco, and truth be told, I have no idea why you'd want to be in either one of those cities or states, but whatever, this is, you know, this is you, whatever. If you travel through the Panama Canal, you could cross just under 5,000 miles, taking about 13.5 days. Prior to the Panama Canal, you'd have to go all the way around the tip of South America, which was longer and much more dangerous, spanning about 12,800 miles, taking you about 35.5 days, and that's assuming perfect weather and no refueling. So you can see that the benefit of having this series of locks is substantial, to say the least. The recognition that it sure would be nice to chop a ditch through Panama goes back in modern history to at least the 16th century. Various surveys, and for lack of a better term, attempts, had been made throughout the centuries. The first actual attempt began in 1881 by the French, under the guidance of Ferdinand de Lesseps, who was the originator of the Suez Canal. He developed a plan, raised funding, and oversaw the start of the process, uh, but he was not well informed of the terrain, the conditions, the changes in seasons, and on and on. And by 1889, the effort went bankrupt. It had gone through an estimated $287 million, which according to one inflation calculator would be equivalent to about $9.5 billion today. Over that time, 800,000 investors lost their savings, and an estimated 22,000 men died trying to make this happen. The project was halted on May 15, 1889. In 1894, a second French company decided that they'd tackle this thing. The Compagnie Nouvelle du Canal de Panama took over with a minimal investment of manpower and money, basically just maintaining the equipment while looking for a buyer for the assets. 
1898, a committee that had been formed to reevaluate the best way across Panama came up with the first idea of a lock type of passage. Around this time, the United States took interest in this passage idea, looking at a few options, one of which was buying the interest in Panama. In, in 1902, the Senate approved the Spooner Act, which would allow the country to pursue the interest as long as various rights were obtained. In 1903, the Hay-Heron Treaty was signed, which had the United States purchasing the rights for $10 million outright and an annual payment. But although this was ratified by the U.S., Panama at this time was a province or a possession of Colombia, and rumors were swirling that the Panamanian rebels were going to try to gain independence from Colombia. Teddy Roosevelt supported, then recognized Panama as an independent nation and signed a treaty with the new government along the lines of the last treaty nearly finalized with Colombia. Starting in 1903, America started to station warships, engineering crews, etc. in place to help the Panamanians and to start analyzing the potential canal. The U.S. bought the equipment and work that had been completed from France in 1904 for $40 million. They also paid Panama $10 million with a $250,000 annual payment. From 1904 to 1914, hurdles were cleared, personnel changed, work was done, and finally completed on August 15th, 1914, we have what is today known as the Panama Canal. The human toll during this time was another 5,609 men. At this point, the canal and various associated lands in Panama were essentially considered property of the United States. The control of the canal was in the hands of the United States, and over the years, including through the 1950s, which brings us to our communist goals, various treaties were signed, but the United States had control over who could and couldn't use the canal, essentially controlling the passage back and forth between the oceans. Specifically concerning the Soviets, they could easily scoot across the Pacific to the west coast of the United States, in theory, but if they wanted to get to the other side of the country, they'd have to travel all the way around South America. And since these scenarios would generally be some sort of a wartime action, the likelihood of them being able to do this safely while the U.S. and the U.K. and all of Europe had passage through the canal to the Pacific would be pretty small. From my understanding, throughout the history of the canal, there have been very few restrictions. Everyone has been charged essentially the same for passage, etc., but that doesn't remove the threat that the canal could be shut down and essentially weaponized by the United States. From at least the 1930s through the 1950s and beyond, the Panamanians were pushing to regain control of their land and the canal. The U.S. signed additional treaties ceding control of various lands and waters, but did not give control of the canal back to them. Eventually, in 1977, agreements were reached and the Panama Canal Treaty was signed. This treaty nullified all past treaties, handed over the control of the lands to Panama, but kept the United States as the manager, operator, and maintainer of the canal for a 20-year period. The treaty went into effect on October 1st, 1979, with the expiration date of the treaty set as December 31st, 1999, which would then default full control to the Panamanians. Additionally, and this is kind of the key to our discussion, in 1979, a separate treaty entitled the Neutrality Treaty guaranteed that the canal would be neutral with regard to the nations around the globe, and that treaty would never expire. This also stated that only Panama may be allowed to operate the canal, but the U.S. could, if needed, use military force to keep the canal open. The United States took the lead on the operation and management of the canal until 1990, where the U.S. stepped back to the assistant role, with Panama being promoted to the lead. In December of 1999, the full control of the canal was turned over to Panama. So what does this mean? Well, technically, if the communists wanted to pass through the canal, they can. In 2022, according to pancanal.com, there were five Russian flagged ships that went through the canal. The United States, in comparison, had 211 ships pass through, China had 94, Hong Kong had 1,023 ships, and to round it out, Singapore had 1,247, Marshall Islands 1,865, Liberia 1,980, and you'll never guess, Panama takes the top spot at 2,041. But you can see that Russia is just not a large user of this canal, and, and why would they be? Now, interestingly enough, during the entirety of the Cold War, no Russian warships were allowed passage through the canal, with the first being the Russian destroyer, Admiral Chabanenko, passing through on December 6, 2008. 
Now, beyond that, the neutrality of this treaty came under fire by protesters in March of 2022 who wanted the Panamanian government to close the canal to Russian ships due to their invasion of Ukraine. The Panama Canal Authority smartly, in my opinion, reaffirmed on March 3rd that they would not break the Eternal Neutrality Treaty, regardless of the Ukrainian invasion. So, although it took about 20 years to gain a permanent neutrality agreement, and it didn't really apply to Soviet warships during the Cold War, the treaty, essentially internationalizing the canal, is in place. That said, in theory, the international community can use but does not own or operate the canal. This is done by a single country, so if needed, Panama could opt to close the doors. And then it would take an invasion and an occupation of the canal system uh, to allow unwanted vessels through. If a hot war ever happened between the U.S. and Russia, if ships played a role in the war effort, I could see the United States putting massive defensive forces at the canal, but one would have to question the importance of maritime warfare in our current era. More likely would be a U.S. defensive force to keep the shipping lanes open so supply lines aren't disrupted. But even then, in an era of long-range missiles, the canal seems like it could be a choke point that could potentially be taken out fairly easily. Then again, if we're at the point that Russia destroys the canal, we got a much larger issue to deal with here. The destruction of the canal feels like it would be more of a, uh, oh great, this too, sort of thing. But for our purpose, I would have to give this goal to the godless heathens known as the commies, increasing their success rate to 28.5 out of 42, or 67.9% attained. And that leaves us only three more goals to go. Like I said, it's likely we will wrap this up in another two episodes, but I think we can agree it's become quite clear that the United States of Americanness versus the communistness of this country is definitely in jeopardy. And with that, bye for now. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Okay, week 17. Can you believe that we're in May already? Anyway, we might as well jump right in, right? Unless you've got some new business that we need to address. Anybody? Nothing? No. Okay, all right. Well, let's go on then. So here's the thing. I'm learning very important, very bad lessons. Last week was a good week. Last weekend was not so good. Popcorn a couple nights, ribeye and homemade mashed potatoes slathered with delicious butter on Sunday. I was fully expecting to break even come Tuesday. I didn't think I'd go up, but I was not expecting a loss. But what we'll now call my normal weekend diet clearly led to me losing 2.6 pounds over the last week. So as of Tuesday, I've lost a total of 32.6 pounds, which is 7.1 pounds ahead of my goal and just under 2 pounds a week on average. That loss brings my weight to 181.8 pounds. I don't think that I'll dip into the 170s by next Tuesday, especially not after what I've done this week, but by the next, I should be in the high 170s. Really narrowing in on my basic goal of 175, and then as I keep saying, we'll see. So this goal stays a solid green. I'm going to come back to books or pages read in just a moment. I have a little bit of expanding to do on that. The daily Bible reading is continuing to progress nicely with my progress against the goal sitting at 160.2%. As I think I said last week, I believe I'll have the daily Bible reading completed by the end of June. I'd like to go back through the next time and read the Bible chronologically. I mentioned that before, but I'd like to do it slower and make it more of a study than a Bible in a year push. At the same time, I've got a number of topical study guides from John MacArthur, such as Freedom from Sin and The Believer's Armor and a handful of others. These guides vary in number of pages, but they're generally fairly substantial books with deep dives throughout the entire scriptures based on the topics. I'd kind of like to include those in my study as well. So bottom line, I'm really not sure how I want to structure this, and I'm not sure how I'll track or even report on it, but I'll figure something out. Anyway, for right now, this goal remains a solid green. As for devotions, well, this continues to click right along, ticking up slightly again to 125.9% of my goal. So again, a solid green. I don't see anything changing with this routine. Okay.
The bulk of this goal update is going to be about books or pages. Now, first, the numbers. Last week, I was able to read 286 pages, so my pace against my goal is 206.5%. I'm at 3,098 pages read so far this year, with my goal for the year being 3,600 pages. Unless my eyes fall out, I think I'll be able to hit this goal. I mentioned last week that the two books I was reading were just kind of, meh, they're kind of okay. Well, I wanted to finish them and move on with life. The lighter reading book was entitled The Dark Heart. If you recall a few weeks ago, I finished the book entitled Pieces of Light, which was the third of four in a series of a specific Christian action thriller type story. This series, written by Julie Cave, about the uh, FBI agent Dinah Harris, former agent Dinah Harris, uh, this was supposed to be just three books, right? But then the author wrote the fourth. The first three were very good. I'd, I'd call them page turners with a little bit of kind of ham-fisted insertion of topics that didn't quite seem to fit into the plot, but they were easily overlooked as the books were generally very good. This one was, as I said, okay. It had parts of it that were quite compelling. But for the most part, it came off as kind of what we all think of when you say Christian movie. It had a couple storylines that felt like they were put together for very specific reasons. The dialogue and the plot were kind of thin. It was easily the worst of the four. Now that said, I am glad I read it, as now the series is complete. So would I recommend it? Yes, if you read the first three. If you read the first three, I think you'd enjoy the fourth but you definitely need to read them all in order. You can't take them out of order or there will be a bunch of things that just won't make sense. Now, the other book I finished was the last book I received for Christmas. Now, every year I'll put a handful of books on my Christmas list along with, you know, tools and movies and random stuff. When I get books as a gift, I want to try to put them toward the top of the rotation because if someone thinks enough to get me a book, it would be kind of thoughtless to just shove it on the shelf and get to it, you know, some year. So this book was only 141 pages. It's entitled Heart and Habits with the subtitle of How We Change for Good. The book was written by Greg Gifford, who is a former army captain, an associate professor of biblical counseling at the Masters University, and is himself a certified biblical counselor. This is another one that I had my highlighter at the ready, and I highlighted a few things, but uh, overall I'm just not impressed. He's apparently a really good biblical counselor, and maybe he's a good teacher. I have no idea, but he maybe shouldn't have written this book. Now, truth be told, I could probably take these 141 pages and edit it down to maybe a 30 or 40 page booklet. There was a lot of repetition of content, of expanding a topic with numerous anecdotes when one or even none would have sufficed. It felt like he had signed a contract with a publisher committing to a certain number of pages You know, the length, even at a relatively short 141 pages, it seemed forced, like what you do for a report in high school or college to hit that minimum word count. So what specifically were some of my issues? First, he labels everything a habit, like everything, walking, breathing, the process of eating. He really pushes to make the claim that absolutely everything is a habit. I just don't think my definition of habit and his are uh, simpatico. He did this to try to drive home the points that follow in his book, but it just came off as pleading his case rather than stating a solid, ironclad, fact-based case. Now, as I said, he used a lot of examples that just weren't needed, and he might work on the side for the Department of Redundancy Redundancy Department because he repeated himself multiple times throughout the book. Again, it seems like he was trying to hit a minimum number of contractual pages. Also, regarding the examples, okay, this this is probably just me, but a pet peeve of mine is when I hear a song about a specific individual by name doing a very specific thing. Country songs are just the worst at doing this. They pick a name because it rhymes with whatever story they're trying to sell you. And it just rings hollow. It just I just can't stand those songs. Well, that's the same type of concept in this book. Very specific examples about very specific scenarios. And they're just serving as an unnecessary illustration of a point that was made quite adequately. Now, toward the end of the book, he has a habit inventory list spanning six pages. 
This drove me nuts. The habit examples are split into four groupings, sinful, unhelpful, sanctifying, and helpful. Under each group, he gives a handful of examples for each of the five predefined spheres of habits. He defined these earlier in the book, spiritual, personal, familial, vocational, and social. Now, first of all, if I'm making a list to take an inventory, I'm going to use a standardized convention, at least as much as possible, to state each of the examples. He just kind of put them down as they popped into his head, or at least that's what it appears Second, if I'm making a list of anything that has a defined set of choices, in this case, your choices are implied to be yes or no, and you could probably throw a maybe or a sometimes in there if you wanted, but but that's about it. If you do this, if you make this list with a predefined set of choices, then you want to phrase the list components in a way that one response is always a positive, the other is a negative. For example, for let's say sinful habits, you'd like for your inventory to have as many no's as possible. No, that's not me. No, I don't do that, etc., etc. But his lists, again, are kind of random, seemingly as he thought them, apparently. So sometimes the best answer from a Christian standpoint is yes. Sometimes it's no. There's no convention or rhyme or reason about what he did. Lastly, and probably my biggest issue with this list, is that the sinful and sanctifying and the helpful and unhelpful lists are nearly identical. In most cases, the choice has been written as the inverse, but it would be like something, I do a lot of murders on the sinful side and I don't do a lot of murders on the sanctifying side. And because he didn't use any standard convention for the way the habit is expressed, it could be yes over here and yes over there, or no and no, or yes and no. It's completely random. Again, it just felt like he saw a way to add maybe four pages to his mandatory total. Now, the overall writing was, again, it was okay, but it was definitely not written or edited well. A lot of, I don't know, maybe not poor writing skills, but writing that doesn't seem to rise to the level of the topic or his intelligence. I guess it was a mix of formal and informal writing, and it, and it didn't mix well. For instance, and this is one that just jumped out at me, but the level of writing was questionable throughout. In one of the lists, he phrases the habit question as, are you available to spend time with? Now, we have all been told you do not end a sentence with a preposition such as with. It shows a lack of care or a lack of editing, or probably both, to leave that question as is. It could have been rephrased a number of ways. Now, in an informal kind of communication, fine. You want to go with? But not in a professional capacity in a published work supposedly of this caliber. Side note, one of my favorite fun facts is that Winston Churchill was apparently such a stickler for formal English and proper grammar, he would ensure that he would not say something grammatically incorrect. Now, you and I may say something like, that's the kind of nonsense I ain't putting up with. You know, but to keep the preposition out of the wrong position, Churchill would say, that is the kind of nonsense up with which I shall not put. And I love the way that he phrased that. Finally, the last chapter, which is termed Appendix 1. Now, I'm not sure why, as there are no further appendices. Doesn't matter. He entitled this, More Education or New Habits? Now, he poses the question at the beginning of the appendix, quote, What is more beneficial about higher education, learning a body of knowledge, or developing habits of discipline, timeliness, project management, communication, sustained focus, and so forth? See, he just wants to make everything a habit. That's what he really wants here. Okay, moving on from that. He makes the case that furthering your education may give you more knowledge, but the real benefit is establishing new or improved habits. Okay, well, I think that could be a purely opinion-based debate, but, but fine, okay. But then the last paragraph, this is his closing statement to his book. And yes, I know this is an appendix, but it's meant to be read. So his closing argument, his closing statement to this book is, quote, For most of us, education isn't outside of the realm of possibility. With federal aid, low interest rates, and online schooling, further education is attainable. Maybe you should go back to school this year simply for the sake of challenging yourself. Earning a degree may do absolutely nothing for your vocation, but it can do many things for your habit development. 
that's worth it. So he's literally advocating for us to go back to school, to take out loans, and go into debt, you know, if we have to, not so much to learn the information that can be used to better your current position or move into a new position. No, no, just to develop habits. Now, it being defined as spending time, effort, and money, spending all of those in this specific location rather than other location, it's worth it, he says. How? I mean, applying for federal aid and taking out low-interest loans is uh, is debt we'll spend to create a habit? That's that's well-spent money? Or Or even... Many habits? I mean, I'll give you many habits, but that's still well-spent money, well-spent debt? No. I mean, I'm all for furthering education and bettering yourself, whether that's personal or professional, but not if you're taking time, effort, and money away from something, someone, somewhere else that needs it, and definitely not if you're going to go into debt to do it. That final paragraph, at least for me, would have shattered my view of this book if it hadn't already been in pieces on the floor. So the question, would I recommend the book? Mm. And I hate to say this, but no, not really. I mean, I'll admit there are some solid points in there, but only some, just a few. I don't think it lived up to the subtitle of How We Change for Good by giving a solid action plan or, or guidance. I mean, he does give some methodology, but it's scant. It, it was a frustrating book to read, a slow 140 pages. So... I'd leave it to your discretion to decide if you want to purchase or even borrow this book, but in my unprofessional critique, I would have to sadly recommend against purchasing or even reading this one. Eh, they can't all be winners. Now, on Amazon, it's got a 4.6 out of 5 star rating, but only 72 ratings total, which isn't really a good number at all. I mean, and I don't expect him to have Bill O'Reilly numbers, but still, I mean, come on. Now, he does have another book out regarding PTSD. I have a feeling that... His time spent in the army and his time being a counselor, I'll bet that book is much, much better. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to read it. Um, but that one seems directly in his wheelhouse. Anyway, sorry for the length of this update. I wanted to be clear with my review rather than just say something like, I didn't like it so good. And that will bring this goal update to an end. Okay, bye.